A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a gloriously sunny, warm Burlington, which is in southern Ontario in Canada, about 30 miles away from Toronto. Joining me today is Z. Cohen Sanchez, a political strategist in Nevada. Logan Phillips, a political pollster in EC. Doug Levy, a freelance writer and communications expert. We have Tanya Oldtrade, the new boy decided that he was going to come back to school, is a philosopher and a nonconformist. And he's in London. And we have Corey Bernard, the snarky bloke from Manchester. And I believe he's got things to say in this episode. But firstly, we're going to analyse President Biden's recent speech before the 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly, which explored themes of reconciliation, global collaboration and the pursuit of a more secure and equitable world. How honest was the president's vision for strengthening international institutions, expanding the United Nations Security Council and addressing climate change and fostering partnerships across the globe? President Joe Biden addressing the United Nations General Assembly this morning and a major focus of the speech, support for Ukraine. Now, this all comes a couple days before Biden hosts the Ukrainian president at the White House. President Biden stepped to the podium around 1030, telling the gathering that U.S. leadership on the world stage has been reestablished under his watch. As president of the United States, I understand the duty my country has to lead in this critical moment to work with countries in every region, linking them in common cause, 
to join together with partners who share a common vision of the future of the world. During his speech, Biden called for a unified global front on many issues, including climate change, hunger, and even artificial intelligence. Emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence hold both enormous potential and enormous peril. We need to be sure they're used as tools of opportunity, not as weapons of, of oppression. The president's speech is also being viewed as a message to American voters on his ability to lead the United States for four more years, this ahead of next year's presidential election. While at the U.N. Tuesday, Biden also called for continued support for Ukraine in its ongoing war with Russia. Doug, the president reflects on the historic progress made in terms of reconciling with Vietnam, which kind of emphasizes that adversaries can become partners. How much of that was a recognition of the past and how much of that bit of the speech was a warning sign to China. We have the Quad, we have AUKUS. What were the optics? What were the reasons for that visit to Vietnam and for it to be mentioned in the speech? I think you have it exactly right. I think it was very much intended to be a signal to China and any other adversary that the United States is willing to work with anybody and any country that has alignment with our values. I think it was a more direct message intended for Russia mm -hmm. because the way that Biden laid out his vision, he was using the example of what's happened in the years since the Vietnam War as an example of what is possible if other countries give up hostilities and work together. A lot is possible that way. What shared vision does the United States have in terms of philosophy, politically or economically with Vietnam? This is purely a strategic stone in the surrounding of China, isn't it? China's been bellicose in the South China Sea, the nine dash line is wagging its fist towards Taiwan. Good to have Vietnam on board. There are no shared political or cultural themes between the two nations, surely. I think that's taking too narrow a view. Of course, this was strategic and political, but I think Biden's view of the world is that we are all global citizens and there is commonality among all humans. That's unfortunately not something that many of my fellow Americans believe at the moment, but it is absolutely a value that some of us feel pretty strongly about. Gotcha. Logan, how presidential do Americans think that Biden has been? He's been bestriding the globe. He, he did have this visit to Vietnam. There he is in front of the UN. Right here and now, in September 2023, do Americans even think that foreign affairs, international relations are particularly important? Uh, if you ask that question when we're not in a crisis, the answer is no. But it's all about how you ask the question. If you're going to get a lot higher percentage of people saying that the war in Ukraine is the top priority, um, then you're going to get people to say foreign affairs. Um, I think they view it as an academic question um, that seems a little less connected. Um, foreign policy is often not an issue at all in an election until it's everything. And we've seen so many elections that get decided in ways that you couldn't predict uh, a few months or a few years ago. It wasn't a big factor in 2000. It was the reason why Republicans had 
one of the best midterms in American history in 2022 after 9-11. It was the decisive factor in 2004 and the decisive factor that helped Obama beat Hillary Clinton in the primary with Iraq. So we see this happen all the time. Right now, if the election, if the presidential election was instead of in 2020, it was in 2021, then I think that would have helped Joe Biden a great deal against Donald Trump with the invasion of of Ukraine. I have my time a little off in there, right? So if it was in 2020, let's say if it, for some reason was in like a month after that election in 2022, in like spring 2022, then it could have been decisive. By the time we get to 2024, it'll matter to voters, especially because there's a huge contrast between Trump having his buddy-buddy weird bromance that no one can really seem to understand with Vladimir Putin, including most of the people in his own party, at least the elected officials. Don't I, I tell you what, the Russian secret service, the FSB, they understand it. It's, I've, I've heard wilder conspiracies than that. You never know. <laughs> Just where are where is the American public with the war in Ukraine? Do you have any polling numbers which you can just bring up? Uh, on that specific one, I don't. But I can say generally, because I don't know the exact numbers, Americans still want to see America help in Ukraine. There are three camps that are roughly evenly divided between Americans that want to see us do less in Ukraine, Americans that want to see us do more in Ukraine, and Americans that want to see us do the same amount. I'd shifted a little more towards less. In the Republican Party, even where you have the top two candidates are the most skeptical of it, there's actually more Republicans that want to do the same amount or more than there are that want to see us do less. It's not so clear cut, right? Americans do view this as part of a role. They're reluctant about it. They don't love that it always falls on us, but they know it has to be us or not, and they want to see someone do it. They'll reluctantly support some role. Now, the amount they're going to be willing to support will probably reduce the more the war goes on, but it's not. It's far from evaporated. Doug, the president, as we said, has been bestriding the globe, and there he was in front of the 78th session of the General Assembly of the UN. Very important. How much of this was him getting, speaking to the world from, from the pulpit of being the world's policeman, self-pointed a policeman? That's America's kind of position. And how much of this is the start of electioneering? Here am I, bestriding the globe, looking not only presidential, but a statesman. Logan probably would know more about this than me, but I don't think the president can really do much of anything at the United Nations General Assembly and motivate voters one way or the other. The reality is that most Americans, if they even know what the UN is, don't have a clue what it does and probably don't care. The ones who care probably are misinformed about what it does. And if we talk about the money and the budget and things like that, it's an even crazier conversation. So I don't think this was really electioneering as much as it was a president doing what the president should be doing, which is representing our nation's interests in the assembly of other nations. He said that the United States seeks a more secure, prosperous, and equitable world, um, emphasizing the interdependence of nations. How much of this is a post-Trump pivot? This isn't America first, is it? Logan? Uh, I would argue that Joe Biden, I think, thinks it's America first, but the rest of the world also, I would say, is Joe Biden's foreign policy. So as a democracy, there's a good argument to say that your first responsibility is always going to be to your citizens. It just doesn't mean screw everyone else because with power comes responsibility. I would say that's Biden's view. And this isn't, to my view, so much as a strike at Trump. Wait a minute, did you more... just quote Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. Actually, I quoted just in favor of my fellas from the other side of the pond here, Winston Churchill, 
who Spider-Man oh. ripped off of. Okay. It's funny. I, we, we all forget that came from somewhere else before, but I didn't realize it was Churchill. Anyway, I thought it yep. was Uncle Ben speaking to Peter Parker at the start of the Spider-Man movies. But anyway, as you... No, here it was as well. It's just Uncle Ben clearly was right as Churchill. Listen, don't let me interrupt your flow. Yeah, it's like last where I was, though. <laughs> so I did interrupt your flow. So I don't think this is a strike at Donald Trump by Joe Biden. I think this is the vision he's always believed in, or especially evolved to believe in, in the aftermath of the Cold War. It's a similar vision that Joe Biden, that Barack Obama shared, which is the U.S. is much better off when we solve big problems together with other countries, that we have a responsibility beyond ourselves to do good in the world, and that doing the right thing usually ends up benefiting us as well, because when we don't, let's say, a coup in Iraq when they had an Iran when they had an emerging democracy in the 50s, that's certainly blown back and caused us all sorts of problems. And this is the, the real difference here, which to go back in your question of the world police, I think that both Joe Biden and probably President Obama would view differently than their Cold War predecessors is there's more of a mutual respect here. Okay, they're going to push US interests, but they talk about it in a very different way. It's not a, hey, we're going to tell you what to do and then you're going to do it type thing. It's more of a, we have these shared values and we're going to work on it together and listen to what you have to say, which is with both of these approaches in their administrations, there's been huge increase of, in approval ratings of the US in key countries like India, Japan, UK, Germany afterwards. I think there's a real resonance to that we're, we're in this together and let's solve these common problems approach to foreign policy. Wait a minute, you talked about key countries and you threw the UK in there as well. You're being very rather generous. Our global standing has so slipped in the last 10 years. But anyway, Z, you work on campaigns, a lot of local campaigns with people running for state Senate, state Congress, etc. Americans aren't bothered about foreign affairs, are they? If it happens outside of America, generally, it plays no part in political campaigning. I'm sure you'll agree with that. Tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong. However, you guys like a nice, big, fat military. Don't cut back on military spending, but pah, the rest of the world, as long as it's America first, no one's really interested. Am I wrong, Z? I think you am wrong. I think when it really depends on the level of government. I think when we look at like races for the state legislator, for example, people get confused, I think. When we're talking to voters at the doors, they think that a lot of the foreign policy happens at the state level when the reality is that it does not. But they do tend to ask our candidates like where they stand on certain issues when it comes to foreign policy. Now, I think that probably the most asked about relationship with foreign policy is probably China, which is, I think, interesting. I think there's a lot of fear, especially in the Rust Belt, Belt states around China and their, what's going to happen with our relationship with China. But I, do, I, I don't think that there has been much conversation outside of our funding with Ukraine, which I also think is interesting because there are people that are on so broadly on either side, either, yes, we should be doing it. This is really important for protecting democracy as a whole worldwide versus folks that sort of naively think that this money should be going into quote unquote other budget. So uh, yeah, I would say yes and no. Doug, uh, the president announced support for expanding the United Nations Security Council and calls for breaking gridlocks to ensure more voice and perspectives are heard. But number one, is this institution on its last legs? And number two, how are we going to expand the United Nations Security Council? That's not going to happen because of the way the Security Council 
is structured and who's got veto power over it. But I think this was Biden taking a stab at acknowledging that there are many other nations that have evolved since the United Nations was founded and deserve a bigger place on the world stage. Whether that's going to happen in the UN or anywhere else, I don't know the answer. It's going to be a long time before that happens, but no harm making the case for that. Tanya, let me come to you. It's increasingly harder to say that Britain and France should be on the UN Security Council if India's not there. There's an argument for Brazil being there. There's an argument for a Nigeria and a South Africa being there. But as as a Brit, do we deserve our place? So that war was a long time ago, wasn't it? Answer is yes, we still deserve our place. Admittedly, like you say, the war was a long time ago. But a lot of the history and a lot of the knowledge of that war and a lot of the culture and the values that war represented in terms of the repatriation and sort of the fixing of the world afterwards lies in this country. A lot of the arts, a lot of the effort and the emotions lies in this country. And this country has led a lot of that to the fixing of the world after that war. We certainly do deserve our place. Whilst our standing in the world has changed over the last 10 years, there is definitely a vacant hole for leadership in the world. And some of that still lies in this country despite what we're going through at the moment. Corey, we've Brexited, right? We're, we're literally friendless. The rest of the world says we're irrelevant. Rishi Sunak went to India the other day and Modi had to be pushed to even go greet the guy. Britain, who cares? Is this our last vestige of any semblance of import, the fact that we're on the Security Council? Just to throw you guys in the United Kingdom a bone, at least in the United States, we still love you. And I'm not just saying that as someone that really likes the UK. I'm saying that as someone that looks at polls. 35% of Americans said that the United Kingdom was the most important ally, more than double anyone else. You know, we like you. 65% say it's favorable view of the UK. 6% say it's negative. So at least across the pond, you guys are in good standing. How can that be true when every American I ever meet in California says, number one, we all have terrible teeth. And number two, fish and chips, what's that all about? Because you love to tease people, and so people are going to tease you back. That's what this is about. <laughs> but the U.S. State Department doesn't say that we are strategically the most important ally. In Europe, it's actually Germany. The website of the U.S. Embassy, I came prepared on this, says that the United States has no closer ally than the United Kingdom. There's not a single embassy that they say that for other than the United Kingdom. I think you've got to maintain the special relationship, or at least the facade of the special relationship. And I think the U.S. will try and maintain that. I think, like you say, Logan, definitely people in the U.S., people across the world still hope and pray that the U.K. can find its feet and come back to its position. We clearly, strategically, there was this recent agreement but across the world with Biden and India and, and the Middle East. And, and the UK was out of that. And then the European Union was in the middle of all of that. So strategically, we don't have much to give at the moment. But yes, you're right. People are holding on to something, holding that we can get our senses back. Wait a minute, Tanya, are they willing us to be great again? They are absolutely willing us to be great again. Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> Let's put the great back in Britain. Yeah. Corey, 
is the fact that we have a UN Security Council seat our last vestige of actually truly being important on the global stage. That and a nuclear weapon is, I'd say, in, in yes, ostensibly yes, but at the same time, I think soft power still carries a lot of weight, and I think Britain still carries a lot of soft power, a lot of cultural power as well. Cultural power, especially when it comes to institutions. So, I think definitely this country's on its last legs as being claiming a place at the top table for sure. But I don't think it's completely down and out just yet. Mm. Goodness. I'd forgotten about those pesky nukes. Those nuclear submarines of ours, they are the handy thing to have if you want to walk quietly but carry a big stick. Yes, and to be honest, when it comes to military, that's what I, was, I, I almost hesitated with that one because the flagship aircraft carrier is about to go out to sea with a third of its aircraft component because apparently we can only fit about 20, we can only get 20 planes on it at the minute. So I, I even hesitate on that one, on the military side of things. But yes, the tri- these silent Trident subs are pretty much our last claim to any kind of military, mili- I was going to say supremacy, can't even say that. Like I said, we're on our last legs. Uh, to be fair, you brought up the aircraft carriers. We have two. India has... One, China has two, France has one, the United States has ten. In, in terms of just aircraft carrier braggadocio, we've got there and we can project power throughout the globe. However, one of the things which Biden did recognize was the urgent global crisis around climate change. And, that, and he said that the United States is committed to combating it through significant investments in international collaboration. Doug, how can that be the case when half of Americans, at least 50%, I can't say that with a pollster here, a lot of Americans don't even believe that climate change is a thing? I actually think the numbers would say something different from that. I think, in fact, I hope a majority, certainly a large number of Americans think climate change is a thing, where the debate is over what's the cause of it and what's the solution. And that's where there's a huge divide. You'll even have some of the folks on the extreme right wing arguing that there need to be steps taken to remediate climate change. The problem is that their solutions are the exact opposite of what the folks on the environmental left would say. For example, there's educational materials that have been distributed in some states that show that solar power and wind energy cause more environmental harm than good dubious science behind that, of course, but that's the other side of the debate. But I don't think people are debating whether climate change is real or not. Biden's position is that the United States is in a very good position to lead the world on climate change solutions, and many in the United States really are doing that. The opportunity is to grow the economy by becoming, once again, a center for new technologies. Part of what Biden said in the UN speech was that we've given up that role largely to China, which is where most of the solar power cells, for example, have been made for the last decade or so. Manufacturing those products in the United States is good for most of us, if not all of us. I'm going to end with you, Z. A couple of questions to you. First off, you did say that when you speak to Americans about foreign policy, they're worried about China. 
I've got my thoughts and feelings as to why your average American on Main Street is worried about China. But let's hear it from you, a rootin' tootin', bony Friday American who has an American passport. Why is China such a worry for many Americans? To be honest, I'm not sure. I think obviously, like, the way that the media sort of spins everything in a way that they have to get views to make it as scary as possible is probably one of the reasons. But if you ask me personally, I think that we have a lot of issues outside of China that we should be worried about. And most of them start with what's happening internally here at home before we're worried about some of our relationships with folks like that. Now, if Trump was the president, I think I'd have a very different answer to that. But I think with Biden in power, I think that shouldn't be as much of a worry than people seem to think it is. And then last question. The speech ended with Biden upholding a call for principles of sovereignty, territorial integrity, human rights, and the importance of international unity in addressing global challenges and advancing human progress. That's just words, isn't it? That's quite kind of what you have to say at the UN. Is there any part of that which is truly important with any kind of signal of foreign policy drive? Most of what Biden says to me feels like just words at this point. I think he's more worried about his re-election campaign than anything else. And I think if you were to actually tell us the truth, um, it might hurt his re-election campaign, to be honest. If you don't mind, just one quick thing. I think it's so important if we're going to talk at the political dimensions of foreign policy, mm-hmm. just to point out that sometimes in American politics, it's location. And so while the national population, maybe there'll be some that Ukraine will be a deciding issue, it won't be most folks. The Ukrainian American population, as well as some of the Eastern European population, we're talking about first generation, second, third generation immigrants, right? Are just so disproportionately in the most important states in America uh, when it comes to our swing vote states that it actually could decide the election. Um, the Ukrainian population in Michigan is three times bigger than Donald Trump's margin of victory in Michigan in 2016. The Ukrainian population is larger in Pennsylvania than either Donald Trump or Joe Biden's margin of victory. And that's not even talking about Polish immigrants or others who are coming from countries that used to be conquered by Russia and care about this a lot. And so there are Republican voters. I've talked to them and I've seen there's very few polls of them because they're such a small group. Uh, but I've seen some data on this too that are have voted Republican for the last four cycles. This is the type of thing that moves them out. And so there's a possibility that ends up being a deciding factor, even if it's not for most people. That's a really fascinating point, something which I hadn't really calculated because I really do see Americans as being very insular in in their true understanding of the outside world. And the one constituency of Americans which is very attuned to foreign affairs seems to be Cuban-Americans because Cuban-Americans have this very special status since they can just turn up in America and they can get accepted as, in effect, as political refugees, etc., But apart from Cuba, specifically Florida, I can't think of any other community which is incredibly vocal about their ex-country and its policies and how that affects American politics. That that was a really good interjection, and and I thank you for that. Maybe what we're going to have to do, Logan, is explore that in another episode because uh, you really have opened my eyes to something there. And But we are running short on time and we do need to come to the UK and to discuss. But Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Birmingham. Birmingham City's financial crisis has been making all the headlines in the UK. The UK government has initiated emergency measures appointing commissioners to directly oversee the council due to its effective bankruptcy. Housing Secretary Michael Gove has severely criticised the council's leadership, citing issues of poor leadership, weak governance, woeful mismanagement and ineffective service delivery. The council grapples with a staggering £760 million equal pay claims bill, which is nearest damn it 1 billion US dollars which is increasing by 5 to 14 million pounds monthly the government is open to providing financial support but warns of impending tough decisions including a potential council tax hike and asset sales Birmingham is officially broke the city council the largest local authority in Europe is effectively bankrupt Services for more than 1.1 million people are now under threat and the Labour leadership under pressure to explain and apologise. For anybody who's suffering across the, across the city, you know, anything that impacts them that the council has done wrong, we'll hold up our hands and we will say sorry for. We've seen local government being cut. We've had the council itself has lost over a billion pounds worth of funding as a result of consecutive conservative governments. This has been ongoing. It's not just unique to Birmingham. What is unique to Birmingham is the council faces a £760 million bill for equal pay claims it still owes after a court ruling in 2012. But the Tory opposition blame mismanagement. They've been telling the public there was going to be a golden decade to get re-elected, while in fact we now know they built it on fool's gold. It's not the first council to announce effective bankruptcy, but it is the largest and provides housing for families in places like Hall Green, which has one of the highest levels of child poverty in the country. We speak to families all the time who have really bad problems with mould or mice infestations. Our concern is what little maintenance and support there is available for these families will slowly eke away until there's precious little left. Now, just before I come to the panel, quick note to you listener there is actually going to be a special mid-atlantic show 
on this topic early next week. I have a panel of Brummies, people from Birmingham, and Andy Street, the Mayor of the West Midlands, who are coming onto the show specifically to talk about how the city has got here and how the city can dig itself out of this municipal mess. However, I am a Brummie, proud Brummie, so hence this is a topic which is really close to my heart. I'm going to come to you first, Corey. I believe you're from Britain's third city, Manchester, which is only half the size of Birmingham. And I'm sure we can all admit we've never heard of anything good or even noteworthy coming out of Manchester, other than maybe one or two football teams, a couple of bands, a couple of notable industries. But apart from that, Manchester's not really noted for anything. How has this been played out in the UK press? I'm currently in Canada. Yes, apart from all of these things, yes, Manchester is relatively unimportant. In terms of how it's played out, do you know what? I've been a bit surprised. And maybe it's just because there's been it's been a pretty busy news week since since Parliament returned two weeks ago and obviously other pop culture scandals, which I'm sure we're all aware of, uh, we've also been sharing news space. So when this first came out, what, I think it's two weeks ago, about two weeks ago when it came out, in line with when Parliament came back, it was yeah, big news. But since then it's, it's died down and I am surprised that Britain's third city being going into bankruptcy hasn't had as, hasn't had as much news play as it should have been. 760 million pounds they've got a shortfall of almost 100 million which is going to go increased by 50 percent just next year there's talks of they've already been selling off assets in the past few years and now there's talk of them selling off the museum the stake in birmingham airport these massive cultural institutions and, and pieces of infrastructure in birmingham that the council own or have a stake in which are very likely to go in a, a very quick fire sale i'm surprised that it's not been 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 in the news much more probably will pick up again next week because next week i believe is when there's a, a an emergency meeting big meeting of the council next monday i believe where they're essentially going to put to paper sort of these finalized plans of how they're actually going to deal with this almighty mess because it really is an almighty mess and i remember it, i know it's i know it's been in the news in terms of it's been apparent to people who live in birmingham obviously these issues that they've had with the equal pay etc cetera, etc cetera, but Apart from the odd thing I've heard, I've not really been aware of it. And I'm sure I'm probably like most of the country. So it was a big shock. And I'm sure we haven't seen the last of it yet in terms of the, the ramifications of it. Tonya, I think it was Deloitte that did a survey this week and said there's about another 20 UK councils which are teetering on insolvency. And Birmingham is not the first council to go bankrupt. I think it's the seventh. How much of this is woeful mismanagement of people's civic funds? And how much of this is to do with the perilous state of the British economy and the funding model, which is imposed by central government on local councils? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Russell. It is a combination of all of those things, starting from the global outlook. There is definitely, if you're saying, if we're saying 20 councils are tintering on the edge, seven have already gone and many more to come. I'm sure that there are many more to come. Combination of austerity, the changing in the funding formula, which are current. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak should know a thing or two about. He bragged about it when he was running for leadership of the Tory party, about how he changed the formulas and took money from deprived areas into more affluent areas. And we can see now the effects of money 
leaving more deprived areas because the formula of funding from central government has absolutely changed. And then, of course, inflation being the third party to that. So those are the sort of global things that are causing these sort of external factors that are wider than the control of council leaders to be able to manage. But then you are, you can see within those councils, there has uh, there have actually been definitely poor mis- um, mismanagement of people's funds. So we've had lots, lots of commercial investments that were very low risks, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, low risk. But now the, due to the economic downturn, they're all really shocking decisions. And we've seen Thorough, we've seen Slough, we've seen Walking or going to bankruptcy because of really poor investments. And obviously then this one's with um, the equal pay not being right. I think there's a big problem there. And many other councils will face the effect of not paying women equally for carrying out low-skilled jobs like catering, carers, and teaching assistant roles. And you know what? It wasn't just those relatively low-skilled roles because my mother got a payout from the council and she was middle management in social services for 30 years. So this dare I say it, screwing over of women on the same pay grade as men went quite up the pay grade scale. So, yeah, as I said, my mother had a claim against Birmingham City Council and got her payout about 10 years ago or so. So it wasn't just the cleaners. It went all the way up to at least to middle management. Corey, this does take the shine off Birmingham having the Commonwealth Games last year, doesn't it? Yeah. And I wonder if it takes to shine, and this isn't me being a, a shady northerner, I do wonder if it takes to shine off Birmingham's, even though it pains me to say it, mini renaissance over the past 10, 15 years. It's Manchester, pretty much every city in the UK. I, I had that, especially cities that relied on a strong industrial base, had pretty horrible grey end of the 20th century. And many of them over the past 20 years have, have really found their feet again. And so I wonder, yes, it does, obviously, it goes without saying, like, it does go, sorry, it goes without saying that, yes, the shine is taken off when you look at Birmingham in the light of the Commonwealth Games, but why, in a wider sense, Birmingham sort of finding its feet again, like other places finding their feet. I wonder if it takes the shine off the city on a deeper level. And then I guess the question is, how long does that, how long would that rot stay in? How long would it take to, I guess, get it back, not just, fiscally on its feet but culturally on its feet and reputationally on its feet as well i think it's a really excellent point that post industrial britain fundamentally in terms of the economic engine has just been reduced to the southeast primarily london full stop for i forget exactly what the share of the population is which is london and the southeast but let's say for the sake of argument it's round about 20 percent. i think that's round about that's it's more yeah but it's more like 30 to 32% of our GDP c- comes out of London. And I think that might even be a slight underestimation that what used to be the case in Britain before Thatcher was that your Birmingham's, your Manchester's, your Leeds were real economic engines and they held their own weight. And one of the things which is unique about the United Kingdom is we're so dependent on our capital city for economic growth. All growth comes out of London fundamentally, that Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Newcastle, Glasgow, these places are still very much trying to reorder their economies around service industries and trying to find their own place. And you go to the centre of any of these cities, 
And you can be hoodwinked into thinking that the British economy is doing well because there's been unprecedented rebuilding of the centre as Manchester as ditto Leeds, ditto Birmingham. Birmingham has more inward investment from outside of the UK than any other city. And it's all going into building high-rise blocks, apartment blocks. The centre of Birmingham, there's at least 20 and that's at least 20 developments going on right now. The, sit- the core of the city will be completely remodelled, but it's the outer bits, not the very centre, where whether it's Birmingham or Manchester, we still have these wide pockets of deprivation. And it's shocking that when you look at some of the deprivation somewhere like Birmingham, it's unakin with Eastern Europe. And I think nationally, we should feel ashamed. They should feel ashamed. One of the things which has really hit the city is austerity and the fact that 70%, and this is just not just Birmingham in this regard, but about 70% of uh, the funding for running the city comes from central government. And with central government cutting back because of austerity since 2010, and then councils then not being able to push that into council, a central council services, to help people get even poorer and then rely even more on those services, even though they've been cut back. And Birmingham, as well as many bits of the UK, which have large pockets of deprivation, have been in somewhat of a, of a death spiral. Tonya, I'm always the glass is half full, always. All right, the fact that Birmingham City Council is bankrupt could actually be the start of a reorganisation of local governance and fiscal affairs, couldn't it? That actually this is the shock that we need and with a new party, fingers crossed, about to come into power, we could have a reorganisation of actually how local councils actually raise funds. Yes, I am glass half full as well and it. I am very optimistic that it provides the right shock for a new party coming into power to, to restructure itself and to think about how we spend public money. Let's think about what the last party did and why some of these things. You remember leveling up? That was a a, a slogan. You know, it's just a slogan. A slogan. It was supposed to. It was supposed to champion in a in massive policy of, of redistributing wealth from the southeast to to wider areas. But it turned out to just be just another dead slogan, which they haven't actually done anything on. Remember, Brexit means Brexit. Brexit doesn't mean Brexit as it turns out to be, and no one knows what Brexit actually means. So again, we hope. And, and optimistically hope to get a party that doesn't just churn out slogans, that actually does the hard work behind the scenes, understands the pain, understands what youth services, libraries, parks, what all of those things mean to local people and why they should be funded and why they, they are important. Youth services? I don't, no, we don't just slap them with ASBOs. Who wants youth services? All those youth needs, good haircut, pull their trousers up, go get a job. That's all they need. That's all they need. For one of our American friends, anyone feel free to unmute and uh, an answer here. But Detroit is the most famous example of an American city going bump. What happens when an American city goes bankrupt? It can take a long time for things to get better, right? The problem is, as there are less jobs, people start to leave housing, communities start to fade away as they move on to other places. Now, maybe that's more of a uniquely American thing to the degree that Americans are willing to move for other jobs, right? That's always been like a signature quality of ours. I think it's still going to be true to a degree elsewhere as well. 
but it can cause a lot of enduring problems and people get dissatisfied. They lose hope as quality of life reduces. But these things aren't even permanent. Detroit is used as the quintessential example. Detroit's having a bit of a comeback right now. There are jobs that are growing there. Manufacturing is starting to get stronger. But it's not necessarily where it was relative to the rest of America back in its heyday. But things can change if you're able to find a new way to innovate or a new industry, or you have technological developments that mean that their region's specialty starts to become relevant. Mm. Doug, it looks like you were poised. Yeah, the issue with municipal bankruptcies is in addition to just the impact that it's got on just the attitude of people to live and work and establish businesses in the community is very much on the public sector. You wind up losing many of the people that make the government function and it becomes extremely difficult to hire and retain police officers, firefighters, in some cases, teachers. Uh, teachers aren't usually city employees in the United States, but government workers who people count on to keep things running, it's going to be a lot harder. Uh, California's had a couple of cities that have gone bankrupt, and Stockton, for example, even with a housing boom in the 2000s, I don't think that city's recovered yet. Mm. It's interesting because... You mentioned police. Police are not funded by local councils in the UK. So, so whilst a local council, we can look at the UK and we can look at the US, but actually their statutory responsibilities are very different. Firefighting isn't paid out of uh, local council coffers in the UK as well. And then the other thing I thought was really quite interesting, that if, because Logan used the example of Detroit, which... I think that that narrative that we have that it's because of manufacturing decline is actually really quite incorrect. That one of the one of the things which the UK doesn't suffer from, but the US does in terms of local governance, is we have a thing called the Boundary Commission, which draws a line around communities and says, this is the city, this is the county, etc. You don't have that in the United States. Local people can elect to leave a city. And that's one of the key reasons why there was the implosion for Detroit, that actually the highest, most highest value properties and hence taxes back into the city were actually outside of the, the boundaries of Detroit and they could leave the the city of Detroit. But we're always told that it kind of manufacturing decline, which most definitely was part of it, but it was actually wealthy communities opting to leave the city of Detroit was then collapsed the, the tax base and that can't happen in the UK and whilst we have this kind of technical insolvency as well the notice that you cannot that your income is not going to meet your liabilities etc etc or, or your expenditures I should say the government in the UK does step in a Detroit situation in terms of that utter kind of collapse where you have devastation and we have neighborhoods which are empty i don't believe that could ha happen in the uk we have a higher bar of financial safety but Corey, am i just being too wistful and banging the drum for britain or can we actually seriously see a city as with a proud history like birmingham fundamentally crash and become depopulated depopulated no i wouldn't say that at all where would they go 
Wolverhampton, I don't think well, so. Well, would Manchester wouldn't have us? Um, no, we're too full. Uh, property prices are going up too much. All the Londoners are running up here because London's too expensive. So, no, we are full. Borders are closed. And if necessary, the deploy the Greater Manchester Police along the M6 to block all incomers checking passports and driving licenses to make sure that you turn around. <laughs> but as to de- <laughs> depopulation, no. Again, where would they go? Uh, Gunful <laughs> brother, man. <laughs> uh, not quite. Stop the invasion, not quite. So, no, a depopulation, I couldn't see that. Um, no, I, 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 I don't think so either. I think there is m- Americans seem to play a lot more footloose and fancy free when it comes to the economic independence of uh, American cities that they seem to be able to go bust with the exception of Detroit because it was such a big city. It doesn't really seem to get people that exercised. Whereas I'm somewhat surprised, Corey, that you said this wasn't such a big deal. Maybe it's because all of my news filters have Birmingham in the title so I've just seen this everywhere it was on the front of the Guardian the Independent the Mirror etc etc the BBC news site but maybe it's because it's my hometown that I'm feeding this disproportionately the country wasn't going down the drain with 10 different crises per day then yeah it probably would have gotten more play I'm sure and you can't divorce Birmingham and its plight away from our general economic plight that it's just as you said every day it's it's another crisis it's another scandal and that yeah. the root of it is the fact that we are getting poorer and getting poorer quite fast but on that note quick reminder to everybody gonna be another emergency mid-atlantic next tuesday where we speak to andy street the mayor of the west midlands dr carl chin local historian every brummy knows him and uh, we have jez collins Uh, who's a a local cultural ambassador and we're going to have a couple of key local journalists and we will go through the issue of how Birmingham's ended up in this sorry state from just 12 months ago hosting the most successful Commonwealth Games. Quickly, gentlemen, why don't you tell us what you've been up to and where people can catch you on social media. Tanya, my good friend, you first. Thank you very much. In the last week, what have I been up to? Working, playing football, maybe doing a little bit of swimming and cycling to work. Yeah, so just what, what, kind what, of stuff. What position are you? I am an attacking midfielder. Oh. So, oh. you know, Dennis Berkson. Oh, so you've got a, sli- a, a silky right foot. Is that what you're saying? Spray the ball around the park? Absolutely. A polished right foot, just like wow. that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, where can people catch you on social media, sir? You can catch me on X. The use of the name Twitter. is... Call it Twitter. Thank you. Let's call it Twitter. I'm happy with Twitter. You corrected me the last time. That's why I changed to X. Let's call it Twitter. <laughs> I'm happy with Twitter. Until they drive us all away by asking us to pay a subscription. Yeah. But yes, you can catch me on Twitter. The username is Taltrait. T-A-L-T-R-A-I-D. Logan Phillips, my good friend. What have you been up to in the last week? Right, on Monday. Football at all? <laughs> Ironically, I'm going to a bar called Across the Pond to watch the New York Giants play football. I'm not really sure why that's why all Giant fans in D.C. are going there, but it's funny. Just thought I'd rub that in your guys' face because I'm sure it drives you nuts that we call it football for some reason, even though it's always thrown. But other than that... Uh, it doesn't drive us nuts. It's just incorrect, isn't it? And, and honestly, it barely touches a foot. I'll, I'll on America's back. Most sports things. This one, but I, I can't really argue it. You're right. You know, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so you're going to watch the Giants lose against who? <laughs> Probably, actually, the 49ers. But other than that, more importantly, oh. my, 
House forecast is coming out on Monday. So that'll mm-hmm. be predictions for every race in the country and the chance Democrats have of winning the majority. So that's what I've been working on all week. Doug, my good friend, how about you, sir? I'm uh, proofreading the final proof of my new book. It's a textbook on communications that has grown from 118 pages in the first edition. It's now over 500, which is insane. And um, writing some other stuff, uh, having a lot of fun doing science writing and other things to keep people honest. You can find me on the internet at douglevy.com, D-O-U-G-L-E-V-Y.com, and I occasionally am on a hex, but not Twitter. really expecting Twitter. that to be much longer. Doug, at just, call it, just call it Twitter, Doug. Go and say it's it. gonna be it's Twitter. History, one way or the other, soon, sadly. Just call it Twitter, though. I just want Elon Musk to burn a whole load of money and effort rebranding this thing, and we still all call it Twitter. What are you going to call it, Doug? The platform that we used to call Twitter is... Oh, this cool. Anyway, and you can also find me on Facebook at Doug Levy PR. D-O-U-G-L-E-V-Y PR. Corey, I believe you left Twitter some time ago, so we can't really talk about how people can communicate with you on social media. But maybe you can tell us what you've done in the last week. Have you played football in the last week? Are you? Do you have a silky right foot, left foot? Are you a goalkeeper? Are you an attacking midfielder? Are you a solid defender? Or do you, are you a goal poacher? What are you, Corey? The last week, I haven't played cricket in the cricket. Sorry, Freudian. Cricket. I do play cricket. No, I do play cricket. That's Freudian. So, uh, I haven't played football in the last decade. Never mind the last week. Really? Uh, my well, too slow. Too slow. Knees not up for it. Not fit enough. Or why not? I really don't know. I, is the answer to that question? I, I, I Born with two left feet. You just in it. No, I was no. I was fairly athletic through school. Played really. Rugby. I played cricket. Yeah. I, just I was just never into football. Playing anyway. Followed it. And Gosh. Well, I know you don't like football. You support Manchester United. That's self-evident that you don't like the beautiful game if you support them. I don't talk about Premier League anymore in public. How did they do this week in the Champions League? No idea. Mm, I'll tell you, they lost against Bayern Munich. <laughs> I've never seen a more one-sided 4-3 loss in all my life. Like, that three goals you got so flattered you. <laughs> but really? 4-3? Like, I, I, I stopped paying attention when it was 3-1, so I, I, I wasn't aware that we scored another two. Mm. I, I tell you, that, heaven, that first goal, what was your goalkeeper doing? What was he doing? I, as I said, I don't speak about the footballing. Mm. I don't speak about stuff like flight football in public at the moment and stuff. I wouldn't know. All right, great. So people can't contact you on Twitter uh, and you've done nothing in the last week. You can't play football. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I've been around I've been around the country a bit this week. I've been around. Have you? Yeah. In your Vauxhall Astra? No, you sold your Vauxhall Astra. What do you, how, how do you get around the country? Yeah, I, I forgot. But I, how do you get around the country now? What's your mode of transport, sir? West Coast and cross-country trains. Oh, gosh. Another symbol of failing I do love the trains. But come on. The price that we have to pay and the government subsidy that we pay these private companies when, you know what? We should own them. But, Tanya, you're about to agree with me. I was about to mention one thing that I did forget to mention earlier when you talked about what we need to do going forward. HS2 is one of the things that connects London to Birmingham and up and upwards up north, allowing people to get into Birmingham from, from Heathrow, from London in less than two hours, less than an hour and a half. So it's that getting that foreign investment that is really key to helping 
the rest of the country to grow and, and spreading that around. Railways and HS2, which the government currently is threatening to cut short, is one of those things that we need to keep alive, mm. allowing those railways to actually spread that wealth going forward. And you know what we should have done? Because there's too much of an agglomeration effect, because all serious infrastructure projects are based around London. We should have started that in the north between Manchester and Leeds and Birmingham. That's what we should have done. Anyway, on that note, good people, you're going to have two, possibly three Mid-Atlantics next week. Let's see if I can get three out. My name is Roy Brown. I've been your host and I've been with Tanya, Logan, Corey, Doug and Zeke. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. And you can say nice things or horrible things to me via electronic mail. And I will respond to either because I'm just like that. Don't forget, left of center politics is right thinking politics. Uh, But we try not to demonize those that don't agree with us because we do believe in the common space, which is important for any democracy. However, we are violently and institutionally and constitutionally against neoliberalism because we want those who have little to have more and to have the space to aspire and to grow. Take care, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.